we're starting this, this week, uh, this series in the book of James, it's an interesting book. I know there's, uh, we were talking this morning, some people have kind of given James a hard time over the, the years because it seems like as you look at the book, maybe he's teaching salvation by works or something along those lines. But, but I want us to get a grasp of what was going on here because really, we just did a series a little while ago on the Beatitudes, which were the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the book of James is basically kind of a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. And so what he does is what's in Jewish uh, teaching, they did what was called a pesher. And a pesher was they would just have these little quaint little sayings that would just be here, 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 here. And it wouldn't be necessarily a deep theological statement as much as just these continued points. And so that's what James is doing. Now, um, I want to ask you a question. How many of you here have a sibling that in your parents' mind has never done anything wrong? Anybody? Okay. Now, I can't raise my hand because I was the baby in the family, so I was that sibling that everybody, that everybody hated. But, um, but think about this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you know, when your parents say, well, why don't you behave like so-and-so, you can still point out areas in their life that you go, well, they don't always do it. Maybe you don't know about it. They're sneaking around, misbehaving behind your back. You think they're perfect. Jesus was perfect. Grow up with that. You know, your older brother never did anything wrong. How come you don't obey like Jesus? How come you don't get straight A's like Jesus? How come you're your table that you made one leg shorter than the other three, but Jesus is there all perfect. I mean, you know, that would be, be hard. So here he is. That's why you see in the Gospels, the brothers of Jesus, and, and even his mother, there's a time where they say, I think he's lost his mind. You know, we need to, to get him out of the middle of this, because I think he's, he's going crazy. Because, you know, it's hard to, to grasp what it's like to grow up with a perfect brother. And so... As we look at this, I want us to understand, though, this same James that at one point in time during the Gospels was ready to pull his brother out and have him committed, is now committed to the Lord. So what made that change? What brought about this, this shift in James's focus? Now, a lot of people believe that the book of James was probably one of the first New Testament books written. It's probably about 15 to 20 years after the life of Christ. And so here he is, he's a brother who's lost his, his brother, but then this brother resurrected and appeared to him, and he appeared to the other disciples. He made him an apostle. He actually became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Most of this was made up of Jews. And then in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen be executed for his faith, be martyred for his faith, and the church disperses. They kind of leave Jerusalem because now things are starting to heat up. So now his congregation is kind of scattered all over the Middle East. And so that's who he's writing to. He says he's writing to those who have been scattered abroad. And so as we, we look at this, we need to understand who James was. Yes, he was the brother of Christ. Yes, he was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He presided over what was called the Jerusalem Council. This was when... The, the Gentiles were beginning to become part of the church, and they had to have a meeting to decide, okay, what does it mean now for a Gentile to be a follower of Christ? Does he have to become a Jew first and then be a follower of Christ? And, and James was one of the ones over there as a Jew, as a pastor of a Jewish church who said, no, 
They do not have to become Jews first. They can follow Christ as Gentiles, which is a major step at that point in time. But he, over, he, he presided over that. He was known by one of the early church fathers. They called him Camel Knees. Now, that was not because he had big, you know, knee, you ever seen a camel? It's like their knees are pretty predominant. Um, but it wasn't because of that. It was because he spent so much time on his knees that he had developed calluses on his knees. And so, here's a person who one moment wants to have Jesus committed, the next moment is following him and writing this this book. Now, in James chapter 2, verse 12, I'm just going to read it. This is, I believe, the key verse, the kind of theme verse for for the book. It says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. You'll be judged by the law that sets you free. So whatever you do, realize that the freedom that Christ gives to you is what that, the, the standard that you're living up to. And so now as we look, begin to look at the book, I want us to understand that the book here is the idea of whether we're going to give up or grow up. And it's the, the, the key to whether we grow up or give up is in our attitude. So let's, let's look kind of at the passage. I don't have the passage up on the screen because it's kind of a long passage. And I just want us to kind of listen. Sometimes we have it on the screen. We can be distracted. I want us to listen to what James is saying here. Because there's going to be two different ideas in this chapter, in this first chapter. is the idea of gifts and rewards. What's the difference between a gift and a reward? A gift is given. Reward is earned. That's right. And so we're going to see here that he talks about both in this first chapter. He talks about gifts and rewards. So let's look at verse 1. He says, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Again, remember he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. Persecution has arisen and now the church is scattered. Now we say, well, isn't that bad that that happened? Well, what were they told in Acts chapter 1 that they were supposed to do? They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. What did they do? They hung out in Jerusalem. And so even though the persecution, and even though Stephen's martyrdom was something that that was traumatic for the church, it was really used by God to, to scatter them out to do what they were supposed to do in the first place. And so now they're scattered and he's trying to figure out how do I keep, not keep tabs on them, but how do I keep encouraging them to grow, to walk in this law of liberty or this law that sets you free that he talks about in chapter 2. And now remember, he is, he could come along and say, well, I'm going to tell you how to do it because I'm Jesus' brother. I have authority because I'm Jesus' brother. But what does he call himself in chapter 1, in verse 1? He says, I'm a slave of God. And the word he's using there is a word that we get from Exodus chapter 21, actually. In Exodus 21, what's happening is there's been a slave who's kind of sold himself into slavery because he had to pay debts. He's now a slave and, and he's, his debts have been taken care of. He's allowed to, be go, to go free. But he says, you know what? I love my master. I love the home I'm serving in. I want to stay a slave. I want to be this bond slave to this master. And if he chose to do that, they took him to the doorframe and took a nail and put his ear against the doorframe and drove the nail through the ear. 
and put an earring in that said, now he belongs to this guy forever. See, the Jews were slaves for a period of time. They were slaves for six years. Seventh year, they were allowed to go free. But once you had that piercing, you're now a slave forever. You're a bond slave to this master. And that's what he's calling himself. He's saying, I have the choice to walk away and do my own thing. But now I love my master so much that I want to be his slave forever. So here he is, this, this camel knees, saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. I want to be his master. But then he jumps into a passage that we all kind of look at and go, I think he's lost his mind. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested... And your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Huh. When trials and troubles come, consider it all joy. That seems like a strange thing to say. How many of us prefer to be miserable when trials and struggles come. I mean, let's just be honest. We say we want to be joyful, but it's, it's kind of more fun to be miserable so everybody can feel sorry for us, right? And come up and put their arm around us and tell us how terrible it is and agree with us. But he says we need to, to count these things joy. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about temptation. It's the same word. The issue is what's the, the purpose here? See, trials come from the Lord. Temptations come from the enemy and from ourselves. It's the same word, but the issue is trials are there to make us more like Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, Jesus learned obedience. How? Through his suffering. We learn to walk with Christ because of the trials that we endure. They make us stronger. They make us uh, more faithful. He says here that there's a spiritual value to trials. First off, it brings a toughness. When we encounter trials, we get tougher. We, we have that skin that, that becomes calloused because we're, we're that constant rubbing against us at trial. And the tougher we get, the more we learn to endure. The more we learn to be what God's called us to be. It brings maturity, a, a stick-to-itiveness. See, the word patience in the New Testament is not like we consider patience today. The word patience is an active word. In other words, when trials come, it's not a matter of going, I'm going to be patient and just wait it out, and I'm just going to sit here and stoically tough it out and make it through the end. No, it's saying the patience that is worked through the trials is an active patience that says, I'm, I know it's tough, but I'm growing. And I'm, bringing, I'm having joy because in the midst of this trial, God's doing something in my life. Because the, the, the issue comes down to what's our perspective? Because our perspective too often is God needs to give me a fun, easy, comfortable life. And when miserable things happen, when trials come, God must have either fallen off his throne, gone to sleep, or he's the meanest thing I ever met in my life. Because why would he allow this to come into my life? I'm supposed to have a nice, comfortable life. Well, I want to challenge you. Find in Scripture anywhere where it says that we're supposed to have a nice, comfortable life. 
That doesn't mean we can't have comforts. But he's talking about here that when trials come, they're, they're developing us in us a stick to This idea that in the midst of it, God's teaching me and growing me. You know, you've heard me tell the story before. And this is a weird thing to say, I know. And I don't mean it the way some people will take it. But in October of 1982, I'm thankful for October 22nd, 1982. is the day my father died. I was 18 years old. But I can guarantee you that if my father had lived longer, I would have been lazy longer. I would have allowed him to do everything for me. That same year, my spiritual mentor was killed in a plane crash. That year, I grew more in 1982 spiritually and, and emotionally and in maturity than I would have if those things hadn't happened. Do I miss my dad? Do I miss Dan DeHaan? Sure. But those trials are what made me stronger to deal with other things that would come along in my life. So, so we, we have this patience, this stick to And then he begins in verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Now, how do we illustrate this? It says that when we need wisdom, we ask of God who gives it. The picture is God's wisdom is like this pitcher. And all he's wanting is for us to ask. And we ask, he pours it out. He gives us what we stand in need of. It's right there, right, right on the edge. We ask, and he gives us wisdom. He never runs out of wisdom. He never decides that, okay, you've asked enough times, quit asking. It says he doesn't get irritated. How many of you, when you go to Walmart, or I don't mean Walmart, I get irritated, but with little children, with little children, when you go to Walmart or Toys R Us or anywhere, and they want something, daddy, daddy, daddy. Daddy, can I get that? Daddy, daddy, daddy. And it's, it's even worse when you're trying to talk to somebody, right? Or even maybe it's not Walmart. Maybe you're here at church and you're trying to talk to somebody. Daddy, 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 daddy. And you're wanting to go, Shut up. can't you see I'm talking? No, you can't have that. Leave me alone. You know, God never gets frustrated. He never goes, quit asking. You've asked a hundred times for wisdom. I've given it to you every time you've asked. Quit asking. He doesn't do that. He loves to pour out his wisdom on us. He loves for it to to be there, to give to us at all times. He says, if any of you like... Now, why would he say asking wisdom? Because you're in the middle of a trial, for goodness sake. How do I deal with this trial, Lord? I need your wisdom. I need to know how to deal with this. I need to know how you're working to, to make me more like you through the middle of this. I need your help with this. And every time we ask, he pours it out. He pours it out. The only difference between him and this pitcher is this pitcher will get empty. But when he pours out his wisdom, it stays full. It never goes empty. It doesn't deplete. And so we just continue to ask 
for His wisdom. Continue to seek His face and He will pour it out upon us. And then He goes on to say, But when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. In other words, when we ask for wisdom, we ask in faith. We trust that the answer that He gives to us is the answer we need. See, sometimes we ask and the answer we get, we go, okay, maybe, maybe he didn't hear me. Let me ask again. I think maybe he misunderstood what I'm asking for. But no, we, we got to trust and believe that the answer that he gives, it may not be the answer we want. I can guarantee you when I drove up in front of my house on October 22nd, 1982, and saw ambulances and fire trucks and everybody there, my first thought wasn't, Lord, please let my dad die. My first thought was, Lord, please let him live. Now, the answer I got an hour later was not the answer I wanted. But because I ask in faith for wisdom, I trust that that may not be the answer I wanted, but it's the answer I needed. It's the answer that was there for me to be more like Christ. And so we ask in faith. And then he kind of throws out kind of a, I don't know, it seems like a a weird thing to throw out in the middle of here. But I think we'll see how it fits. He says, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises, the grass withers, the little flower droops and falls. Its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. It seems like James kind of just chased a rabbit trail. (laughs) You know? We're talking about wisdom and trials. And then he talks about money. And you go, why is he talking about the rich and the poor? His point is, it doesn't matter what station you are in life, trials will come. And we need to trust the Lord. And the rich, I mean the poor, what do we do? When, when, when you're already strapped, you know, there's already more month at the end of your money than, than you're used to. And you go out and you go, what's our first reaction? Well, what's my first reaction? It may not be yours. Y'all are probably more spiritual than I am. My first reaction is, I already don't have any money. Now I got to fix the car. What's wrong here? Why is this happening? If I were rich, this wouldn't be a problem. I could just call somebody and get the car fixed. Those terrible rich people, they have it easy. He's going, if you're poor, be thankful that God's teaching you something through this. But he says, but if you're rich, don't rely on that. Because you know what? You can be as rich as, as anybody in the world. Trials will still come. May not be the same trial. May not be a matter of how am I going to pay for this part for my car. But other trials will come. People who have all the money in the world still get cancer. Still have children that die. Still have people killed in car accidents. Still have other issues that come up. Still have divorces and, and, and problems that happen in their lives. 
Because trials are going to be there for everybody. So if you're rich and the trials come, trust the Lord. Ask for wisdom. If you're poor and the trials come, ask for wisdom. Seek the Lord. The issue is we're all in the same boat. We all need to seek the Lord and seek His wisdom. And that's what James is telling us here. And then he jumps to a passage we don't like to hear. Beginning in verse 13. Well, he actually says in verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Remember, trials are, are the gifts from the Lord. When we endure those trials and we patiently wait and we seek God's face, we get the reward, which is eternal life, which is the crown of glory, which is becoming more and more like Christ. There's that difference. The trials that come are the gifts When we endure through it and we become more like Christ, that's the reward. But then he starts in verse 13, the passage I was saying, we don't like to hear. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true Word, and we, out of all creation, because became His prized possession. He says, well, how does sin work. Because what he's saying is trials, when, when bad things come your way, that's not sin. When, when someone you love dies or when someone you love gets cancer or your car tears up or your kids disobey or whatever, those trials are not sin. But he says there is sin in our lives. So we need to learn to distinguish between the two. But he says there's a definite progression of sin. He says, when you're tempted, don't say God's tempting you. Because why are you tempted? You're tempted because your own sinful desires. It wouldn't be a temptation otherwise. If you didn't want to do it, it wouldn't be a temptation. Because something deep in you, that sinful nature that's still lurking around says, that looks like fun. And we get that seed thought. Now, the illustration he's using, there are no kids in here, right? The illustration he's using here is the illustration of conceiving a child. He says, basically, when the thought comes in your head, it's that seed being fertilized. And when that seed is allowed to continue to grow, it eventually becomes fully born. And when it's fully born, it brings about death. So we need to realize that there is a point where we need to say, it ends right here. And it needs to end before that seed is ever fertilized. When the temptation comes, we need to throw it out then. And I'm not going to use illustrations, but all of us in here know that this is true. Even if it, didn't, even if it wasn't a matter of saying we know it because the Bible says it, We know it from our own lives. Where something is tempting and we go, 
No, I'm not going to do it. Well, maybe. I'm, no, I'm not going to. Well, okay, let me. No, no. And eventually, it begins to build. And it begins to build. He said, well, it doesn't always bring death. It may not bring physical death. But it brings a death to something in you. Something that says, even if it's a death of understanding that we're not separated from the love of God because we begin to feel shame and misery for what we've done. And we begin to walk away from what we know to be true. Now, I want us to understand. Remember, the key to whether we grow up or give up is our attitude. Now, Preston, don't go into the next slide yet because this is not on your slides. Um, There's basically four ways we deal with trials in our lives. One is there's those who are the fatalist. Who, you know, it's like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh no, we'll never make it. I'm I'm just glum, miserable life. You know, I knew it was going to happen. Everything was going along good. For too long, I knew something bad was going to happen. Just terrible life that I live in. You know, there's, we all know people like that. We may be that way sometimes. There's some who are the Stoics. Hey, it's a tough life, but I'm tougher. I'm going to make it through. I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to make it through this no matter what. Then there's some who, hey, life's tough. Let's have a party. You know, let's just get us drunk and stoned or whatever we can do so we forget about all the miserable stuff. You know, let's just, hey, you know, it's going to be bad tomorrow. We might as well forget about it for today. Let's do what we can. Have a good time. Then there are the mature disciples who say, this is a trial. It's not fun. I'm not going to grit my teeth and stick it out. But I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to ask for His wisdom and I'm going to continue in His patience to do what he's called me to do because that's how I grow and that's how I become like Christ. It's not a stoicism that says I'm just going to tough it out. But it's a, it's a resolve that says I'm going to make it because he's told me to make it. So if it all relies on our attitude, what attitude should we have? First, James says we should have an attitude of joy. An attitude of joy. Now that doesn't mean because everybody will have you locked up if you do this, is when bad things come, oh, hey, hallelujah, praise God, this is great. My life's miserable. It doesn't mean that. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not this, this false thing that we give sometimes of just smile and everything will work out. Joy is that we trust and we know that in the midst of it all, God's in control. And I can rejoice because he's in control. So we have an attitude of joy. We have an attitude of trust. He said, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. That all that we seek his wisdom, that all these things make us more and more like Christ. That verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father. Even trials. They're good and perfect gifts. We don't see them that way. And it's hard to see them that way. But the attitude of trust says that even in the midst of this, God has allowed this in my life for a reason. I'm going to trust him in it. Then an attitude of dependence. 
Again, going back and seeking his wisdom, realizing that we're all in the same boat. It's not a matter of depending on my own resources, like the rich man, or depending on someone else's resources, like the poor man. It's depending on the Lord. It's trusting that even though what I'm going through is not fun, he will pour out his wisdom on me when I ask. He will give me what I stand in need of to be all that he's called me to be. Think about, if you get a chance, read 1 Corinthians, I want to say chapter 11. Maybe 2 Corinthians 11. It's somewhere, one of those two. Paul sits and lists all the different trials and struggles he went through. And I'd be willing to guess that most of us have not been through anything remotely close. He was beaten times without number, left for dead, shipwrecked. You know, spent all these days and nights floating in the middle of the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. All this stuff going on in his life, and yet he still trusted the Lord in the midst of it. He depended upon the Lord. And so it doesn't matter what comes our way, we depend on him. We have an attitude of fear. Say, fearing what? Fearing our own selves. Fearing our own sinful desires to do what God's told us not to do. And it's not a fear as in like watching it, you know, where you don't want to walk by a a drain anymore because there might be a a clown down in there to grab your leg and pull you in. Not that kind of fear. It's It's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a matter of when you're you're standing on the back of a boat in the middle of the ocean and you say, do I want to jump in? Not fear the sharks, but, but an awe and an awesomeness and realize and understanding the power that is there in that water. The power that can kill you like that. It's a reverence for that water. I love whitewater rafting. But the reality is you get out of that boat, you're taking your life in your hands. Life jacket or not. There's rocks. There's water that can suck you under. So you respect it. And we realize and understand the potential that we have to do the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. But in fear and in reverence and in awe of understanding who God is and the power that he gives for us to overcome, then we walk in that fear. We have that attitude of fear. And then lastly, we have an attitude of surrender. He says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. See, the, when it comes down to it, when trials and temptations come into our life, how we respond is up to us. You say, well... I thought we were supposed to rely on the Holy Spirit. You are supposed to rely on the Holy Spirit. But it's not a let go and let God. Well, there's a trial coming, so I'm just going to sit back and see how the Holy Spirit deals with it. No. Paul says in Philippians that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's both and. We trust and we lean on the Holy Spirit, but we have a job to do too. 
And so the choice is ours as to how we respond when trials come. Do we trust? Do we depend on Him? Do we surrender to Him? Do we we fear the possibility that we could do the wrong thing? Do we have joy that He's working in our lives and drawing us closer and closer to Himself? That's what, I mean, just think about James. Think about the man who's writing these words. He grew up in a relatively probably poor home with seven brothers and sisters. He grew up to eventually realize he was totally wrong about his brother. But his brother loved and forgave him anyway and put him in leadership in the church and then the church is scattered out from underneath him. Now he's the pastor of people who are scattered all over the Middle East. And then he spends all this time seeking the Lord's face and then in A.D. 64, just a mere 13, 14 years after he wrote this book, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem kill him by a violent death. Yet in the midst of all of it, he says, consider it all joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work. That you may be complete and mature. Now we use the word perfect. The word perfect here is not meaning sinless. But it means that we become more and more mature. It's a growing process. That's what we're talking about here. In this understanding the gifts of the Lord are the trials that come our way. The rewards are when we endure through the trials and we come out on the other side more mature and become like Christ. So as we begin to look at the book of James, there's going to be time and time again because the reality is James, you know, people give him a hard time because it seems like he contradicts Paul. Because Paul says we're justified by our faith. And James even comes out and kind of says in chapter 2 we're justified by our works. You say, well, which one is it? It's a matter of who are you justified before. We're justified before God because of our faith. Our faith is justified before others by our works. Because faith without works is dead. It's not a matter of just believing a bunch of things in our head and sitting in church every once in a while or every Sunday and getting more and more things in our heads. It's a matter of how do we live it out on a daily basis and His power and His strength for His honor and His glory. Let's pray.